Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, January 24th, 2021, and this is show number 820. This week, Steve and I started doing a few interviews from CES. Of course, the event wasn't quite like any other year, and we won't have nearly the amount of, co- of content that we normally do. I did have a couple of opportunities to sit and watch video announcements of products, but you know what? That just doesn't blow my dress up. That is just not interesting to me. Maybe it's because anybody can do that, and I think the value I bring is asking the right questions so you can tell whether a given product might be of interest to you. Well, the good news is there was another virtual Pepcom press event like the one I told you about a few months ago. As before, I had access to a web page with a grid of vendor logos, and I could select any vendor, watch a short video that explained the product, and then if I thought it might be interesting, I could go into a Zoom room with the vendor. In most cases, I was able to chat with the vendors directly, and just like the in-person events, there were vendors who had crowded rooms and I couldn't get any one-on-one time. So one of the things I I did was, I talk, as I talked to people that I thought were interesting there, I made arrangements to contact them later to set up interviews. So I'm doing standalone interviews that were not actually during CES, and so those are going to be coming in over time. Um, you know, when I was at Pepcom, though, just like in-person Pepcom, some of the products were really interesting and the kind of thing I think might be fun for the Nocilla Castaways, and some were definitely not. In the words of Billy Bob Thornton in the movie Bad Santa, you know, they can't all be winners. Well, the good thing is that Pepcom can happen several times a year. So instead of a giant flood of products to tell you about that lasts for months and months and months, you're going to get smaller doses more often. I know Steve, for one, appreciates it being distributed a little bit more. So anyway, with all that said, we've got two interviews this week to start, along with a bunch of other fun content. But first, let's start with a listener review about the iPad video editing software LumaFusion from LumaTouch. Now, this is going to surprise you when you hear his voice, because this is not Alistair Jenks from New Zealand. This is Chris Nielsen from New Zealand. G'day Castaways, my name is Chris, I'm from New Zealand and I make moto vlogs, which are vlogs shot on a motorcycle. And I wanted to talk to you today about a iOS video editor that I use called LumaFusion. For years I've edited on Final Cut and DaVinci Resolve on a Mac, but a few months ago I switched completely to using the iPad and that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. I've been using LumaFusion for a few months now. And although I feel like I'm reasonably familiar with it, there's so many advanced features that I don't think I would do a proper review justice. So instead, I would like to talk you through how I do a basic edit, and then I'll briefly mention some of the more advanced features and I'll compare it to Final Cut. So a typical motor vlog might be me making a video of myself and some friends going for a day's ride on some nice twisty roads. And we have a lot of nice twisty roads in this country. So before we start, I plug my helmet camera into the USB power socket on my bike. I hit record and just leave it going all day. I then come home with maybe five or six hours of footage. And the problem to be solved here is how do we take that five hours of mostly boring riding footage and turn it into an interesting five minute video and without spending a month editing it. The first task is to transfer the files from my action cam onto the iPad. I use a USB card reader and I copy the files directly from the micro SD card directly into a folder on the iPad using the files app. Now when we launch LumiFusion, we see that the main screen is by default split into three parts. The entire bottom half has the timeline running right across from left to right top half has split into a monitor window where you can see whatever's playing and a source window where you can see your original clips, photo library and so on. Uh, to the left of the timeline are the audio meters where you can see the volume of each track. Uh, there's also a volume control for each track uh, and there are some other buttons for track controls. You can hide all that away while you're editing. Along the bottom of the screen are editing controls like the scissors button to cut and the delete button to remove a clip. You can also press a button to add overlay titles or a voiceover. There's a button on the bottom left to make a new project, so we'll go ahead and click that and give the new project a name, leave all the other settings as default, and and click the little plus button at the top to edit. In the source window, 
we can now navigate to the folder that we put the clips in uh, from the files app. Now, because we have so much footage, I'm not going to go through each clip and pick out the good bits. I'm just going to drag the whole lot onto the timeline in one go, and then you get one nice long five hour timeline. Now it's time to get comfy on the couch, Apple Pencil in hand, and get you some coffee, because this is going to take a while. The way I edit is I do in passes. First pass, I just quickly skim through the timeline to get a sense of what the footage looks like, and it lets me decide how I'd like to make the final video. Then I make multiple passes through the video. I use the scissors button to make cuts in the timeline, and then I select a boring bit and hit delete, and it's gone. As I skim through the timeline, I'm watching the monitor window. Somehow LumaFusion's program has made it so fast, it just always seems to keep up no matter how fast I scrub through the timeline. It is a shame though that it doesn't play audio as I'm scrubbing, which makes it hard to spot when someone says something stupid, or funny, or both. <laughs> Who am I kidding? That's me usually. Because we have helmets on, I can't see the other person talking, and so really do need to actually hear them, which means I need to keep a close eye on the waveform and hopefully pick up any spikes. It's difficult because with helmet noise being so high, it makes the waveform look really messy and it's hard to, to spot. But I believe they're working on, on that limitation. Now we've got the video down to a manageable length, I flick across to Safari, and go to Epidemic Sound, which is an unfortunately named but excellent paid subscription service providing music for video creators. I download some interesting looking bits of music and then I just drag them into the timeline on a spare track. By pinching the zoom, I can zoom right into frame level and I can see the waveforms and the audio and the music. And I can line up the cuts in my video uh, to the beats and the music. Eventually we'll get the timeline down to a point where it's time to fine-tune the edit. LumaVision has some editing tools that come in handy for this. You can grab the end of a clip, the uh, handle on the end, and you can drag it left or right to adjust the length of the clip, and the rest of the timeline moves with it, which makes fine editing really easy. By default, clips on different tracks that are directly above or below each other link together. And so, say if you grab and drag a clip to move it to a different part of the timeline, if it's got a sound effect or a piece of externally recorded audio, say, linked to it, it all moves together so that you don't lose sync. Now you can unlink clips or you can unlink whole tracks, which is handy for making your music stay put when you're editing on the main timeline. Now we've got the video where I'm happy, it's time to add some titles. We can add main titles and lower thirds, maybe a couple of transitions. LumiFusion has a good selection of titles and transitions, but as I'm a boring old fart who likes plain titles and transitions, and yes, I like Helvetica, I'm sorry. You can choose any font on the iPad though, and you can also install your own fonts if you're cooler than me. Now we're done editing the video, we'd better upload it. I use the built-in YouTube export function to upload it as a private video, then it doesn't show up, so I can take my time adding descriptions and tags. I use the snapshot export function in LumiFusion to export a frame that I think might look good as a thumbnail. I put that into Affinity Designer, add a title to it, and export it back out, and I use that as a customer thumbnail in the YouTube Studio app. Once I'm ready, I hit publish and it's online. So that's a basic edit done and dusted. And even if that's all that LumiFusion could do, it would be a very good editor. But there's so much more. So if you double click on a video clip in the timeline, it switches to a properties screen. There are whole pages of settings for speed, frame and fit, as they call it, audio and color and effects. And each page has a huge number of parameters that you can change. And the real power of LumiFusion is that each of those parameters can be automated by keyframes. I think the easiest way to explain how keyframes work is to give you an example. In the frame and fit screen, I move the playhead to the start of the clip, then change the size parameter to about 25. This will make the video shrink in the preview screen to about quarter size. Tap the add keyframe button, and that adds a blue dot at that point in the timeline. Now that blue dot is a keyframe, and it remembers that you set the size parameter to 25 at that point in the timeline. Then move the playhead to halfway along the clip, change the size parameter back to 100. The video is now shown at full size, 
and another blue dot has appeared in the timeline at that point. So when you play back the clip, it starts with the video quarter size and smoothly gets larger until it gets to full size about halfway along the timeline, which is exactly what you just told it to do. So with just a very few taps or clicks, you've just made an animation. Well done! Back on the normal main screen, when you play back the video, there's your animation. And LumiFusion will play it back without dropping frames or needing to render. You can set keyframes on multiple parameters in the same clip. And with six video tracks, you can stack multiple animations and have them all play back in real time. Now that is some power in an iPad app. There's a couple more features that I think are worth mentioning at this point. There's only basic color correction tools inside LumiFusion, but you can add a LUT effect for some rudimentary color grading. Now, a LUT is a lookup table. It's basically a file that you can buy or download from somewhere that you can apply to the video that transforms the look in some way. For example, a teal and orange LUT will make your video look teal and orange. By adding the LUT effect in LumiFusion, you can apply external third-party LUTs to your clips. You can even go into Affinity Photo on the iPad, use the color grading tools inside there, and then when you're finished, export that as a LUT, add that back into LumiFusion, and you can color grade like that. It's not ideal, but it does work. Once you have your video looking good, you can use the copy and paste and multi-select feature to copy the effect and then paste it onto multiple clips. And just in a couple of taps, you can do the whole video. Boom, your video is color graded. Now it looks awesome. LumiFusion also has integration with the video collaboration service called Frame.io. As I understand it, it means that among other things, other users are able to comment on your video. And Frame.io will also transcode any incompatible video formats like ProRes. So for the first time, LumiFusion can use professional video formats that the iPad doesn't support natively. As I understand it, once you're done editing using the proxy files that you got from Frame.io, you can send the whole edit back across to Final Cut Pro, where you can reconnect it with the original ProRes files that were transcoded. That's just mind-blowing. So what is missing compared to Final Cut? Well, quite a few things. It has no multicam editor. You can do multicam video, but it's significantly more difficult to do it manually. There's no stabilizer for handheld footage. There's no motion tracker, which is helpful to blur speedos and license plates when you're having a exuberant ride. There's no distortion correction, which is useful for GoPro fisheye type video. So what is my verdict after all that? Is LumiFusion a viable alternative? Well, for what I do, mostly yes. I wish it had proper color grading and a multicam editor, but I love being able to edit on the couch or lying in bed, and the Apple Pencil is very direct and tactile. It's much better than using a mouse, I think. Being able to make fancy intros without using a real computer is just hilarious. So I'm gonna keep using it. They're gonna keep improving it. Hopefully it gets some missing features. Well, hopefully this has been of some interest. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end and I will see you later. Well, thank you so much, Chris. I got to tell you, you know, I don't do any video editing normally, but I feel like learning just to get to use LumaFusion. For $30 US for an iPad app this capable, I mean, that's just crazy pants. Anyway, thanks a lot for your first review. I certainly hope there will be more coming and I think there might be. All right, let's switch gears and hear our first CES interview. Well, at Virtual CES this year, I stopped by the ViewSonic booth during the Pepcom Digital Experience event, and I saw a lot of really cool stuff, and I mentioned to the representative that ViewSonic isn't a brand I hear mentioned often in Mac circles, and I, I found that kind of surprising given the numerous cool displays they were showing off at CES. So I've asked Ray Hedrick, Product Marketing Specialist at ViewSonic, to join us today to talk about some of the cool products I got to see at CES. So welcome to the show, Ray. Thank you, Allison. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, to your point, uh, you know, I, I don't. A lot of Mac users may not know that ViewSonic makes some really, really cool solutions that work really well for for Apple. So I, I really love the uh, the opportunity to get to talk about these. Yeah, for some reason we talk about LG and we talk about maybe HP and of course you know dream about the Apple monitor, but that's pretty much where the conversation stops. And maybe I run in the wrong circles, but uh, I wanted to hear more about the the cool stuff. So what are the, what are the top things you would uh, want to tell us about that would be relatable to the Mac community? 
Right. Yeah. So one of the big pushes that we've had in 2020, and actually we, we have a whole campaign running around this in, in, during Q4 of 2020, uh, was an awareness campaign about USB-C and uh, the way that we implement USB-C on our monitors. So it's such a complicated thing. From a marketing standpoint, um, the, the entire rollout of USB-C and Thunderbolt and the connectors, I mean, all of that has just been kind of a nightmare for the last several years. But um, Apple made a very smart choice back in 2016 to standardize on that as their input output for their MacBooks. And, you know, depending on what model, you've got anywhere from one to four of them. And they support full DisplayPort audio, video, USB-C connectivity, and that's their charging source. So when we look at USB-C, on our monitors, we have only really implemented what we believe is the highest level of support that you would want on your monitor. So they all will support full uncompressed display port and audio. They all support um, USB-C transfer from the ports that are on the monitor. So if you have a keyboard and mouse, you connect them to the monitor and then there's just one cable running to your Mac so that when you come and go, you just connect it, that's all you have. Um, but then the important- So it's essentially a dock on top of being a monitor. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of the monitors on the market will do all of that, but then they leave out the USB-C power delivery standard. So they don't do the charging side of it. They will do maybe 10 to 15 watts of USB-C. Uh, we only will use 60 to 90. So we 60 charge- 60 to 90? Yeah. 60 to 90 watts is what we we implement on all of our USB-Cs. Even on our portable monitor, we it comes with a 60-watt wall adapter. <laughs> you plug that in, and it'll charge your MacBook just with that one plug. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm a 16-inch MacBook Pro user, so that 90 watts is singing to me. When you say 60 to 90, do you mean they all have 60 to 90, or they have 60 or 90? 60 or 90. So depending okay. on the model, some of them are 60-watt ones. The other ones are 90-watt ones, yeah. Okay. Oh, I like that. You know, the portable USB-C monitor thing is really taking off right now. Uh, yes. I've got a, a little one that's probably not the highest quality one you could buy, <laughs> but, it, but it solves a real problem for me when I just need another display. I need a little bit more space and I can keep it in my drawer and take it out or throw it in a laptop bag. So I, that's cool that you've got those. I definitely want to hear about what you have there. Um, yeah, no, yeah, I'm sorry. No, these are not Thunderbolt displays, just to be clear, right? Correct. We are looking at, so one of the things that we showed at CES this year um, was our concept and what will become a product later in the year of our 8K monitor. And that is our VP3286-8K. Uh, That's a 32-inch crazy IPS 8K monitor, and that will be a Thunderbolt display. So um, that is a new entrant to us. We have not had Thunderbolt displays, but we will be bringing uh, at least one to market this year. 8K. 8K. I need 8K now. <laughs> we all do. I mean, and, and, and what we're finding is, is that um, even if you're kicking out 4K content, you're often authoring video content in 6 to 12K. So having an 8K monitor for both video and photography purposes is a really useful use case for customers because even when you kick it out at a lower resolution, you work at that high resolution. Okay. So the, the AK monitor, uh, I'm looking at your press kit at the same time. It says available summer 2021 with an estimated street price of $5,000. Does it come with a stand for $5,000? It absolutely will come with a beautiful ergonomic stand for those $5,000. Now, what I'm going to want to know is where is the top of the display? Because I'm actually looking at the, uh, at the Apple Pro Display XDR right now. And the top of the display is four and a half inches above eye level, which is not ergonomic. Yeah, um, so this one, um, we don't have the final specs on the adjustment, but it, it typically has five to six inches of up and down adjustment. So okay. um, you can actually get it to hunker down pretty low if you need to. Good, good. This one goes up. It's the down it doesn't do. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, so they went with a double hinge design. So it's sort of where it mounts to the stand, you can't go much down from there. So ours does not do that. It's the more traditional. It floats along the, the back of the stand. So you got okay. an okay. adjustment. Okay, plus 8K, not just that stinking plus 6K. 8K. Plus nonsense. Thunderbolt and uh, full Adobe RGB. It comes factory calibrated because, of course, this is a professional photo monitor. It has to. But actually, one of the really cool things about that monitor is that it comes with a little puck that is a controller for the UI. You know, Mac users, Apple users, very important UI, and we, we focus on that. So it's a very easy to navigate through the menu in the monitor. 
uh, if you need to. But also that little puck is a screen calibrator. So you put it on your screen, you calibrate it. You can do it every day, once a month, six months, whatever you want. But it comes with its screen calibrator. Oh, that's really slick. Okay, so if we get away from the the monitors that most people don't need or and can't afford, but right. we love we all love to learn about and dream about them. Um, wh- what are other monitors that you consider great for Mac users? So if they're looking at um, if your users are looking at monitors like right now, uh, we've got a lot of solutions, especially for work from home. So um, we've got some in what we call our VX lineup. Those are more our premium look and feel monitors. Um, if I can throw out a, a part number, uh, I would throw out uh, VX2785-2K. Um, that is a 2K monitor, a 2560 by 1440, 27-inch USB-C with power delivery. Um, and we've used it with MacBooks here in the office, and it makes a real slick one cable. You know, plug it in, it charges your MacBook. It's a nice 27-inch uh, display to work on, and it's an IPS screen that's full 8-bit. So the, the color quality is actually really, really up to the standards of, of a Mac user. Okay, what, what's the uh, what's the brightness on a display like that in nits? That one's a 300-nit brightness. 300-nits, okay. Yep. I think most people uh, are don't demand really high nits. I do, because I find that my eyes focus better when I get more sure. bright light into my eyes. But a lot of people hate bright light into their eyes, so it's a, you know, please everybody, okay? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm actually the same way. I usually turn the brightness all the way up on my monitors. Yeah, so what about in the 4K range? In the 4K range, one to really look at right now is what we call the VP2785 uh, 4K. Um, that monitor is part of our VP lineup, which is our color professional monitors. Um, but even being a color professional monitor, it is under $1,000. And uh, full 4K resolution, uh, USB C, again, with power delivery. Um, USB ports, if you you know you want to connect keyboard and mouse directly to your monitor, you can do that as well. Or if you need somewhere to plug in a thumb drive, you've, you've got that right on the side. Um, and 4K, uh, full Adobe RGB and full uh, uh, DCI uh, P3 as well. So if you need to use it for video work, um, they like P3 wide color gamut for, uh, uh, for Final Cut. So th- that works really well on that monitor. Okay, so you're distinguishing here between the VX lineup and the VP lineup. The, the VX you said was was premium look and feel, um, but is that is that your lower priced options? And the VP Correct. is the higher so priced stuff. Are, right, those would be more um, your your home or your home office uh, monitors. Don't we don't ex- uh, really include things like the ability to have factory color calibration on those? Everything is you know calibrated to the to the panel, but um, they're not. Uh, you know, Delta two or less in terms of color accuracy to the Adobe RGB space like you would get on a VP. Um, so they are a little bit different customer, but if you have a Mac user where this is their email and their Excel machine, you know, that's that's where those monitors are really awesome. Okay, so the VX is for normal people. Yeah, yeah, the VX is for normal people. It's reasonably priced. You can usually pick those up right around uh, $300 street price. Okay, do you, have a, do you have a 4K version in the VX lineup? Uh, we do have some 4K offerings in the VX lineup. Uh, we have a 32-inch 4K that um, customers might want to check out. So we, we have uh, two of them that jump to mind would be um, VX3211 and VX3216. Those would be two 4K monitors to check out. Okay. And, so not 27-inch 4K. 27 inches 2K and 32 inches 4K? Uh, there are 27 inch 4k offerings. Um, I don't believe we have any in the VX right now. Okay. Okay. So if you want to go to 4k, that would be in the VP line If 4k at 27 inches, you would go into the, uh, into the VP lineup, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, this is, this is pretty interesting. I like, I like the, everything about what you're saying. I like that you've got them in these different price points. You've got normal people stuff. You've got stuff for the high-end video photographer, uh, color calibration and the color gamut and all those words I don't actually understand. Um, but the idea of USB-C to power the device, have it as a hub, um, that's that's what people, normal people really need and want right now. And I, I think that that's a, uh, that's a, a real... It, that's attractive to me as a Mac user. And I think that's probably attractive to my audience as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we we have, uh, as of right now, there are 18 models with the USB-C that we offer to the market. So, um, and all of those power delivery would work perfectly on a MacBook. 
Oh, wow. That's fantastic. So um, to be honest, the names of these monitors don't quite roll off the tongue for me to be able <laughs> yeah. to remember which one's which. Uh, where would people find uh, the USB-C monitors that you've been talking about today? Uh, I, be- uh, I believe that, uh, well, actually, you know, we have a landing page uh, at ViewSonic.com. So even if you just Google a ViewSonic USB-C, uh, that landing page should actually be one of the first results. And uh, we kind of show uh, towards the bottom of that page, we show tell you all the benefits of the USB-C that we implement. Um, and then towards the bottom, we give you like a breakout of, okay, here's the, here's the ones, here's the safe ones. So these are all the ones that have it. So very good. Well, that sounds fantastic. So viewsonic.com is how we go uh, learn more about these monitors and see what we need for, uh, I mean, Christmas is over, but I don't know, my birthday's coming up. You never know what's <laughs> going to happen, right? Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Ray. This was fantastic. Thank you so much, Allison. Love me here. Well, if you enjoy the content we produce for the podcast, from the NoSilicast to Chit Chat Across the Pond Light to Programming by Stealth, consider showing your appreciation by making a pledge at Patreon and going to podfeet.com slash Patreon to do that. You get to choose a dollar amount that's right for you and your family. The patrons of the Podfeet podcast are really the ones who help us keep going week after week. If you get value out of Bart's contributions, and let's face it, who doesn't, be like me and become a patron of Bart's by going to patreon.com slash ltpod. And of course, you'll find those links to Patreon in the show notes. I obviously don't do much traveling now, but when Steve and I do travel, about a third to half of what we pack is electronics. I don't even go to dinner at our son Kyle's house without a backpack containing a laptop, an iPad, and all the chargers and cables, and of course, our phones. Like most of us, I continue to seek simplicity in charging when I travel. One thing that's made it easier for me is the Omni 20 USB-C power bank I told you about way back in the middle of 2019. That was another CES find, by the way. This is a 72-watt-hour battery with two USB Type-C ports and two USB Type-A ports. On travel, I put the Omni 20 by my bedside table at night, and I hang a cable off of it to charge my phone and the charging puck to charge my Apple Watch. Technically, the Omni 20 supports Qi charging on top of it, so I could charge my phone that way, but, you know, like most Qi chargers, placement is tricky to get it just right, and the phone can easily get bumped around, so I stick with the cables. During the day, I plug my laptop and iPad into the Omni 20, and also plug the Omni 20 into an outlet to charge both the battery and my devices via USB Type-C. With the Omni 20 in my bag, I don't have to pack a charger block for the Apple Watch, one for the iPhone, one for the iPad, and one for the Mac. I only have to carry one small gallium nitride charger for the Omni itself. When it's charged up, I can move the battery around to wherever I need it and even share some juice with my fellow travelers. It's more space efficient, but at night it is still annoying to have this rat's nest of cables hanging off the charger. I know it's only a rat's nest of two cables, but they're both really long and tangly. As a possible simplification, Steve got me the MagSafe Duo Charger from Apple for Christmas. When it was initially announced, there was a lot of complaining about the price. The MagSafe Duo Charger is $129, which is definitely not cheap. Keep in mind, though, that it comes with the Apple Watch Charging Puck, which Apple charges $29 for if you buy it standalone, and it comes with the $39 MagSafe Charger. If you wanted to, you could justify the purchase by saying it's only $61 for the MagSafe Duo, since you'd be buying the pucks anyway? Maybe? That doesn't sound too bad. Well, I'm not sure I'd still recommend buying it, but for a completely re- other reason, separate from price, which I'll get to in a moment. I really like the industrial design of the MagSafe Duo. It's two white plastic squares, very stiff ones, that are connected at a flexible joint, which is very, it very satisfyingly snaps together via magnets. You can flip it shut like a tricorder, but sadly the magnets are too strong to flip it back open. And don't think I didn't try. Embedded in one side is the MagSafe charger, and in the other half is the Apple Watch charger puck. Easy enough to rest your phone on one side and your Apple Watch on the other side. Now my current favorite watch band is the Solo Loop. Navy blue with a red Apple Watch is simply stunning. And at first I wondered how I'd use this charger since the puck is embedded flat to one side. I then realized that the little watch puck actually rotates up 90 degrees, so you can easily slide the watch onto it with any kind of band. In fact, it's much more elegant with a solo loop, because with a normal watch band, the band halves kind of stick out to the side with one half of it kind of resting on your phone. So it's a lot cleaner look with a solo loop. 
Now, I mentioned that I don't use the Qi charging option on the Omni 20 battery because it's fiddly to align the phone properly to get a good charge, and it's too easy to knock it away from the right spot. With MagSafe, there's no question about when you've aligned your iPhone properly on the charger. The phone makes a very satisfying funk sound out of its speakers, and then it makes the normal happy charging sound, and there's a giant graphic of a green circle on the display. Even if you can neither see, see nor hear, you can feel when the phone is, secure, is securely connected to the magnets. Now, at this point, you'd think I'm a big fan of the MagSafe Duo charger. But there's a big problem. The Duo does come with a cable. It's lightning to USB-C, which I think is lame. I think everything should be USB-C by now. I don't know why they did that. But it does not come with the charger block. Now, you might think I'm being a big whiner like all those belly acres about the iPhones not coming with a charger block, but let me defend my whining. Apple was able to justify the iPhone not coming with a charger by pointing out that pretty much everyone already has a charger. Oddly, they included a lightning to USB-C charger cable, like with the Duo charger, and hardly anyone has USB-C chargers yet, but most people who buy Apple products have lightning cables, so I guess that, that was probably okay. With the Duo, though, you can't apply the same logic because the Duo requires a 20-watt charger. I'd like you to look around at the chargers you own right now. How many of them are 20 watts? And more importantly, can you tell which ones are 20 watts? I have two chargers plugged into the outlet above my bathroom counter. They look identical. One is powering my HomePod Mini, and the other is the one I use to charge my 12.9-inch iPad Pro. In fact, I think it might have come with it. These two USB power bricks, sorry, USB-C power bricks are both from Apple and they look exactly the same. If you look at the plug side though, they're ever so slightly different. The one that came with the HomePod mini says 20W in lettering inside of a rectangle. The one I'm using for my iPad Pro has no such lettering. To figure out what level of power this charger can provide, I needed to use the magnifier option built into the iPhone. Now, since I'm an engineer, I happen to know that power in watts is equal to voltage times current, which is measured in amps. On the bottom of this mystery power brick, it says output colon 5V, followed by a solid line above three dashes, and then followed by 3A. I'm a mechanical engineer, so I didn't actually know what that symbol meant. I did some searching and discovered that the solid line over three dashes simply means DC or direct current. That's opposed to, as opposed to AC or alternating current, which is shown with a sort of sine wave, if you know what that is. All right, back to our equation. So our power brick says 5 volts at 3 amps DC, which would be 15 watts, because 5 times 3 is 15. But it also says 9V at 2A. 9 volts at 2 amps, that's 18 watts. So which is it? Is it 15 watts? Is it 18 watts? How do I know how many volts the device I plug into it is going to draw anyway? Well, it's irrelevant for our MagSafe Duo charger because both 15 watts and 18 watts are under what we need for the Duo. The one that looks exactly like it, but does say 20W underneath it, does indeed work with the Duo. But think about it. How would a normal person know any of this? Are we all expected to know that power is voltage times current? Are we supposed to know how much current we're going to draw from a device? Are we supposed to even be able to read this microprint in the first place? Well, here's another example. I use a CalDigit Thund uh, TS3 Plus dock for my MacBook Pro and my display. I've got a bunch of USB-C devices hanging off of it too. On the front, there's a USB-C type, uh, sorry, USB Type-C port and a USB Type-A port. I plug the Lightning to USB-C cable that came from the Duo charger into the USB-C port on the dock and my phone would charge using the Duo. All right, great. But then I tried a Lightning to USB-A cable and the phone would not charge, even though it was plugged into the same dock. It was a USB-C port and a USB-A dock. There's no lettering whatsoever on this dock to let me know how many watts or volts or amps or whatever this thing can supply. Well, I looked up the specs on my dock and the USB-C, uh, USB Type-C and Type-A ports both say 5 volts, 1.5 amps. That's only 7.5 watts. So why does the Duo work with the USB-C port on the CalDigit TS3 Plus? Why does that work at all? I thought maybe it was because I was only charging my phone on it, so I dropped my Apple Watch onto the Duo Puck, and sure enough, I can charge both my iPhone 12 Pro and my Series 6 Apple Watch at the same time on a port that's only supposed to be supplying 42% of the power required. Okay, let's try another one. 
I've got a Hyperjuice charger with two 100-watt USB-C ports and two 18-watt USB-A ports on it. So I had to give this a try just for grins and giggles. Not surprisingly, the 100-watt USB-C ports will charge the watch and phone using the Duo, but the 18-watt USB-A ports will not. Well, at least that one kind of makes sense, and Hyper was kind enough to label the ports with the watch they can supply. I am, of course, not the only one to find flaws with the idea of not giving you the right charger for the MagSafe Duo charger, and others have found some even more weird things that you need to know about charging. An article in The Verge about the MagSafe Duo pointed to Apple's support article about the MagSafe Duo charger because of course you would be expected to read a support article when you want to use a darn charger, right? Absolutely, first thing I would do. Well, according to support article HD211925, you need to use a 20-watt or greater Apple USB-C power adapter. But there's an asterisk on that. It says you can't use the Apple 29-watt USB-C power adapter. Well, wait, wait a minute, is it 29 watts? Greater than 20 watts? Why is that? Let's just keep reading the support article about the Duo because I'm sure things will become much more clear if I keep reading to you. In a section about fast wireless charging specifically for iPhone 12 models, it says, quote, The MagSafe Duo charger is designed to negotiate the maximum power up to 9 volts and 3 amps with a USB PD compatible power adapter. Well, if my cipher is correct, isn't 9 times 3 27 watts? And there was no prior mention of PD, which they don't define. I happen to know PD means power delivery. Why is that? Well, according to an article on GoalZero.com, the people who make solar chargers, power delivery is a specification for handling higher power and allows a range of devices to quickly charge over a USB, uh, over a USB connection. It operates by facilitating a conversation between two devices to negotiate a power contract so they can determine how much power can be pulled from the charger. So does this mean to provide max power, we need a 27-watt adapter when we were told we only needed a 20-watt adapter? And could we get a hint on how to know if the adapter we have supports power delivery at all? <laughs> but wait, there's more. If you want fast wireless charging, again, according to the Apple support document, you cannot use USB-A at all. So the USB-A port on my CalDigit TS3 Plus dock, that explains why that one didn't work, but the USB-C port did. So this is, this is really, really getting confusing. They also say you can use a 9-volt 2.2 power adapter, sorry, 9-volt 2.2 amp power adapter that provides up to 11 watts of power or a 9-volt 3 amp and higher power adapter that provides up to 14 watts of power. Wait a minute, you just finished saying we had to have a minimum of 20 watts and 27 watts for fast charging. What is all this 11-watt and 14-watt nonsense about? Well, you know what? They keep going on with this gibberish for a couple of more bullets, but I actually can't keep, I can't keep reading the support document. It's too much. It's too annoying. I got to tell you, I'm very glad that the OmniCharge Omni 20 power bank I talked about at the beginning provides 60 watts power delivery on its USB Type-C port because I'm pretty sure 60 watts is bigger than all of these other numbers. I didn't trust them, though, that after they said that doesn't work with 29-watt adapter foolishness, so I tested the 60-watt USB-C port on the Omni, and it worked to charge my phone and watch with the Duo. I have no clue whether it's doing fast charging, though. So I'm going to bottom line it here. The MagSafe Duo charger is pretty cool, and I'm really glad I have it for travel, but I would definitely not recommend it for a normal person unless I told them you have to buy the Apple 20-watt USB-C power adapter for $19 to make that work. Or better yet, you could do a poke in Apple's eye for doing this to us and suggest they buy the much smaller and less expensive Aki Omnia 20-watt for $14. It's the same size as the original 5-watt charger for iPhones, but because it's a gallium nitride charger, it'll charge a max-sized iPhone to 50% in 30 minutes. I think the best way to sum up the MagSafe Duo charger is, it just works, except when it doesn't because you don't have an electrical engineering degree. At Virtual Pepcom, during Virtual CES, I saw a very interesting home security product from a company called Origin Wireless. Dan Bugos, uh, product manager at Origin Wireless, promised to get geeky with me about their product and the technology behind it. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hi, Allison. Super happy to be here. 
All right. So I've all I've said so far to the audience here is that this has something to do with home security. Why don't you give us your start with your elevator pitch and then let's dig in. Got it. Okay. So Origin Wireless is uh, the parent company of a product we call Hex Home. So Hex is a do-it-yourself home security product uh, with an optional professional monitoring service. And it's unlike anything else today on the market with regards to security. And that's because Hex is a wave-based security system. So instead of using contact sensors and motion sensors that you place in all the corners and nooks and crannies of your home, Hex fills your home with Wi-Fi waves, and we do a little bit more there to uh, figure out what's going on. Um, so that's where we can get into it. Um, but in okay. general, the way it works, yeah. In general, the way it works is uh, the Hex command will analyze how the waves change. As, wait, wait, wait! What's a Hex uh, command? Gotcha. Yeah. So um, here's a Hex command, and for those just listening, what I'm holding is a pod-shaped device a little bit smaller than a hockey puck uh, with rounded edges. It's white. And this would sit on a countertop or a table. Um, and yeah, again, it's about, you know, three and a half, four inches in diameter. Maybe Amazon um, Echo size would be a good way to describe it. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Except so prettier. that's a hex command. <laughs> We'd like to think so. So um, the, the hex command, uh, do you plug that into your uh, into your network? Exactly. So this will hook up to your home internet and the other types of devices in the system are hex senses. So these are little wall plug-in devices that have a built-in siren and an LED light ring. So the way the system works is your command and your senses will talk to each other and they will communicate using just regular Wi-Fi signals, and fill your home with Wi-Fi. And the command is the brain of the system. So the command will analyze how the Wi-Fi waves are changing. And in turn, they can let you know when somebody has intruded. So isn't my house already filled with Wi-Fi waves? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Probably a lot. <laughs> so how do you uh, not have interference with other Wi-Fi that's in the, in the room? Yeah, so just like when you add a new IoT device into your home, they will undergo a process called channel selection where they'll figure out what channel in your Wi-Fi spectrum is best to communicate on. So because Hex uses standard Wi-Fi protocol, um, all of that kind of channel hopping is built in and it won't cause any interference on your network, just like any other IoT device you add, like an Echo or, you know... Um, a Sonos speaker, for example. Okay. I guess I never thought of those as sending out Wi-Fi signals the way the command does, but I guess they must be, right, in order to be captured by the router and then uh, sent on to other uh, to the network. So the, the command is the name of the, the hockey puck thing that, that uh, connects into your network, and then what, what's the name for the little ones that go into the wall, wall ports again? Sure. So that's the sense. Heck, sense. Okay. So now let's talk about how you know what it is. How do you? How is this analyzing? How is the command analyzing the the Wi-Fi waves that it gets back from the senses? Sure. So the way it works is we have software on the hex command that does Wi-Fi analysis. Um, we actually refer to it as wireless AI or wireless artificial intelligence. And the idea is um, we use what we call AI engines to interpret how the waves change. And this is uh, where I'd like to talk a little bit about Origin Wireless, uh, the Hex Home parent company, and how that ties into things. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Sure. So, so Origin is um, a Wi-Fi sensing startup founded out of University of Maryland Research. Uh, our founder is a signal processing researcher. And in 2013, he had this breakthrough discovery where he realized that Wi-Fi waves can be used not only for communication, but for sensing purposes. So, you know, usually you use Wi-Fi to stream Netflix, but he actually discovered that by analyzing how the waves change, uh, we can perform a whole bunch of different applications. So 
over uh, the next you know, few years, um, him and his research team developed what we call AI engines. So these are specific um, artificial intelligence engines that we trained to be able to understand what's going on in an environment. Um, so Origin has many different engines, but the one that we put onto Hex, we call our motion engine. And what this does is every second, and actually really 30 times per second, it's interpreting how the wave changes and it's outputting what we call a motion statistic. And that's a zero through 100 level of motion that describes you know, how many of the waves are being disturbed and, and what kind of motion is going on in the home. So I, I, I realize there's a, yeah. there's a, well, there's a big piece we sort of skipped here is the, the problem that this is solving is there's an intruder in your house. So it's detect, it's going to detect that, uh, that Sally, the burglar is walking through my living room by disturbing those waves that have gone from the command of the sense and back. Exactly. So it's got to be working on the fact that, uh, bags of water, humans disrupt radio waves, right? Yep. Yeah, that's how we do it. So when a human moves through Wi-Fi, because we're made of water, the signals will refract and bend in certain ways. Um, and that's what we're measuring is those changes. And your the engine must be then uh, have been taught how to tell what uh, dog bags of water and cat bags of water, how they disturb it differently? Yep, exactly. So a pet will have a different kind of signature of movement and we can recognize that signature and then filter it out. Okay. Okay. So what really stood out to me with in the presentation that was done during Pepcom was the, it, it was actually the little video clip at the beginning that uh, before you go into the room that explained the simplicity of this. I mean, you literally have this puck that's plugged into, into your router or into your network and into power. And then these little plugs that go into your outlets and there's no other stuff I mean, that's all of it, and it's sensing motion, can sense motion inside your home. Exactly, yeah. So when we were building Hex, we wanted to solve the pain points of, quote-unquote, traditional security. So traditional security all uses some variation of the same hardware. Those are motion sensors or passive infrared sensors, contact sensors, uh, a hub, a keypad. And it can be painful and difficult to set those up. All those little really... tiny things on every single window and door. I've got them everywhere. Got like 47 oh, of them. <laughs> yep. And, and they'll fall down if your house is humid. You know, the sticky tape will uh, kind of degrade over time. Um, they can be kind of be an eyesore if they're in every corner. Um, a lot of doors, you know, they don't actually... Um, work with because of the way the door in the frame is designed. So, you know, right, right. it's a, it's a real headache for the consumer. Yeah. And, you know, my husband and I are both engineers and geeky and mechanically inclined and all that kind of thing. But I always try to think of normal people who I guess spend, you know, $12,000 paying someone to put up all those little sensors, that kind of thing. Yeah. So with Hex, because it's a super simple do-it-yourself system, you know, it's, it's basically plug and play. Right, you plug in three devices, you connect one to Wi-Fi, you're up and running. Um, so we are skipping all of the costs that come with an installer, or you know, um, all of the extra hardware that comes with the system. So, how many of these do you need in your home? Sure. So, one starter kit comes with a command and two senses, and that'll cover pretty much the the standard. Um, home in America. So that's 1,500 square feet. I think the average home size in America is about 2,200 square feet. And you can think of that as kind of a, a first and second floor. So one hex system will you know, cover more than um, enough for a ground floor, where really that's what you want to protect. And that's where you'll detect an intruder. Oh, that's a good point. I mean, you could put another, you could put more senses upstairs, I suppose. But by that time, you already know that somebody's in your house. By the time exactly, they go upstairs, yeah. they've already, they by definition will have disturbed the waves downstairs. Yeah, we'll, we'll catch them as soon as they, they enter the door. So, so <laughs> it's funny, my brain was going down the, the path of, uh, well, I would need one of these senses in every single room because it's got to be sensing the waves in each room, but the waves actually go through the walls, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so we have something called non line of sight sensing, and that's kind of like a research term. 
but basically it means we don't need our sensor to be pointing at the thing it's trying to detect. So it will go through walls, um, you know, it will bend around couches and you can really place these things anywhere. The Wi-Fi signal will penetrate through it all. And, I mean, you probably um, wouldn't want to put all three in the same room. That would probably be a little exactly. dopey, right? You'd put you'd put the the uh, command in one room, and then the other, the two senses in diagonal areas of the home, something like that. Yep, you got it, Allison. That's exactly right, and that's what we recommend users to do: is place them about you know one to two rooms apart, fifteen to thirty feet or so. Um, keep your senses spread out in in relation to your command. So. Okay. Now, I want to challenge you a little bit on one thing. Up front, you said that uh, you're the only company doing anything like this, but there are a couple of router manufacturers who have built in something like this. I know Netgear, I forget what the the other vendor was, but I think Netgear has something that uses Wi-Fi waves to sense people in your home. But you mean just a standalone thing that's that's different like that? Sure. So actually, you may be referring to uh, Linksys. Did I say um, Netgear? Yeah, Linksys. Sorry. Right, right, right. So that that was actually our first partner. Um, oh. So we worked with, yeah, yeah. So, so we worked with Linksys and we upgraded their routers to basically become uh, sensors. Okay, okay. That's pretty funny. I'm glad I asked that question because I've been hearing on other shows that people were saying, yeah, but, you know, Linksys already has this, but you guys are the guys that built it into the Linksys routers. That's very cool. Is is there another another uh, network vendor that, uh, networking company that has it? Yeah, so, yeah, I'll be transparent. Um, one of our competitors uh, is on uh, the platform called Plume. So Plume Pods also have, I believe, a motion sensing feature as well. Okay. Okay, I got you. All right. Well, that, that's good to know. I've I've heard of Plume, but Linksys is certainly a, a household word. So if you had to if you had to go with somebody, what what advantage would there be of using it through your router? It would seem to me that just that's just adding an extra sense, right? Or is so it command the, also? So the the router deployment's a little different because because that's for. Um, Really, it started with mesh routers. Mm-hmm. So we put our routers on on mesh Wi-Fi devices, and then you kind of had a command as the the router that's connected to the your really your internet with an Ethernet cable, mm-hmm. and then the other two mesh devices are your senses. So you can oh, see okay. the same sort of architecture is is forming there, where you've got a command and senses. Um, and in the future, what you'll see is you know we can put our technology onto you know, any, any standalone home router, not even a mesh system. And what we can do is use IOT devices like Echo Dots and um, Wi-Fi light bulbs. You know, I, I got some examples here. So like a, a Philips Wi-Fi light bulb that connects to your home router. We could use this as the same thing as a sense. So if, you, if you're kind of getting the idea, yeah. you know, the router becomes, I got all these devices, <laughs> but your, your home router will become your command and your, your, your light bulbs or your anything else in your home will become your sensors. Oh that, man, I could, I could really go clear. nuts. Cause I've got even more of those than I do of the little sensors on my windows. <laughs> I would just stuff oh, littered everywhere. You'd be totally covered. I'm sure. Very interesting, but it's this is this is such a we should back away from the nerdy approach that that most of my audience probably would do. But for normal people, if they want to have a simple security system without a bunch of faffing about with all these other devices, just putting in a command and two senses, they would have motion detection and and uh, and know if somebody was in their home. Now you mentioned an LED and a and a siren, so you set a trigger for how sensitive it'll be for that, or how do you do that? Sure. So the LED on the senses is um, kind of like a nightlight feature. So that will light up if you're walking near a sense device. So it's kind of great for if you have a sense in your hallway and you're getting up in the middle of the night, you know, it'll light up uh, according to your motion. And then the siren um, will go off whenever there is like a, a motion event. So that's, you know, an, a, a time when there's significant motion enough that we can conclude there is an intruder in your home. Um, so your sensitivity level will will change what we dictate is a motion event. Um, so, you know, the, the higher your sensitivity, um, the more 
that will the more likely the emotion Retreat. event will be detected. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm assuming there's an app. Yep. And uh, right. is there anything we need to know about the app, or is it pretty much the obvious stuff? Set sensitivity, time of day. Is there geofencing? What what kind of things do you have in the app? Sure. So the app has three system modes. Um, so that's home, away, and vigilant. Home mode is pretty straightforward. You'll have that mode on when you know you and your family are, are safe and sound. Away mode is for when you want to you know lock your house down. Mm-hmm. So that will trigger your alarms if somebody intrudes. Um, that's also pretty standard in security. Now, vigilant mode is unique to Hex, and we're really excited for this feature because it allows you to keep an eye on things without triggering your siren. So if you just want to know that, you know, um, your kids got home from school and it's 3 p.m. or so, you can just get that notification um, without triggering a siren. Um, And then another use case that um, some of our users have expressed interest in is using Hex for the the independent living kind of space or Ah. the, the older adult monitoring. So knowing that, you know, mom or dad is kind of, safe in their home, moving from the living room to the kitchen, um, kind of going through their daily routines. We can have vigilant mode so that you can get alerts uh, going, but you don't need to trigger an alarm or anything. So oh, that's, that's a really interesting one. I'm, I'm very interested in the independent living uh, ideas because I know a lot of companies are trying to, to look at that problem where how do you give, give the, uh, the people who care deeply about those who need to be helped uh, the the security and knowledge that their family member or friend is okay without it being creepy. Every solution I've seen is like, oh, that would totally work, and no one would let them put that in their house, right? <laughs> like, I know, let's put a camera in the bathroom, make sure they didn't fall. None of those ideas yeah. work. So this, I keep thinking of this being coupled with a camera. Like to me, if I saw motion, if I got motion detection from um, from my my uh, sense or from my hex home, I would want to then see what it is. That would be my first instinct. Uh, is is that something you see coupling together, uh, or I mean, is that just what the user would have to choose to do? Sure. So you're you're one step ahead of us right now. Um, that's absolutely something on our roadmap. Mm-hmm. Um, the triggering of a, a camera, kind of waking up when we detect motion. Um, so one of the issues with those uh, motion sensing cameras that use computer vision is they can be a little bit delayed. Um, so yeah. you end up just kind of catching like the tail end of like Always. somebody, you know, rushing by. So never us, once have um, I caught my, my mail carrier. I don't know how fast she is, but I've never seen her on my ring video doorbell. Not once in like three years. <laughs> right. <laughs> Or if you do, it's just like them kind of running out the door at the very end of the, the steps yeah. or something. So, yeah. so, so we were looking to solve that problem because, you know, we can, our, our motion detection will, will cover the whole home. So as soon as they enter the home, then we can wake the camera up and we'll get them as soon as they come into the picture, instead of having all of that time that it takes for the camera to kind of calculate oh. what it's seeing and then, and then take a snapshot. Yeah, that's a good point. So they break in my back window or my back sliding glass door, for example, then they're they're in the house. There's time because they're in the house as you're as you're waking those things up. That's interesting. Well, this is a really cool product. Um, what's your your pricing and delivery on this? Sure. So um, a hex home starter kit with a command and two senses will cost one seventy nine ninety nine, and if you want to add an additional sense for a little more coverage, you can get that for $40. Well, that's not bad. And are you shipping yet? So we're shipping um, in the summer time frame. Um, so we're, we're really looking forward to that. And, and that'll come with a optional professional monitoring service as well. Okay. Yeah, I saw that you were working on that. That's uh, that's obviously something for people who definitely you know don't have their house covered in cameras or want to make sure there's some sort of alarm that that triggers that. Well, this is very cool. If people want to learn more and look at the products, uh, where would they go? Sure. So they can go to myhexhome.com, uh, where they'll have a complete overview of the product and they can get on a wait list. Um, we'll also be launching a Kickstarter campaign, which they can be uh, looking out for soon. Um, and then if they want to learn more about the underlying technology and some of the other use cases, 
they can go to our parent company website, originwirelessai.com. If you Google Origin Wireless, we'll come up for sure. So, Okay, for the underlying technology. Got it, got it. Well, this has been very cool. Uh, thank you so much for taking your time t- today, Dan. I uh, really appreciate talking to you. I'm, uh, I'm excited about this product. This is, uh, this is pretty interesting. I think this is an awesome idea. Thanks so much for having us on. Um, really excited too. It's been a pleasure. Well, I'm really curious to see if the Hex Home Security products work as well as they describe, so they've agreed to send me a review unit in February in advance of the production rollout this summer. I'm definitely looking forward to testing it out, and you can be sure you'll hear back from me on whether it's as good as they say. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to become a Patreon? Go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. You want to do PayPal instead because you don't want a monthly commitment? Podfeet.com slash PayPal. Want to join in the conversation? Podfeet.com slash Slack or podfeet.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.